I'm LZ Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. People ask me all the time, did I know that I was gay before I got married to my wife? And my answer is always the same. No, I didn't know I was gay. I knew I was attracted to the same sex, but I was under the impression that I wasn't gay, but instead was under a demonic attack. And if I just prayed hard enough, I would defeat the devil and be straight. And I know that sounds crazy. It sounds crazy to me just saying it out loud, but that's just where my mind was. And that happens to be where a lot of queer people are when it comes to faith and their sexual orientation. So that's what I did. I prayed and I fasted and I did gay conversion programs similar to the Exodus program, which was founded in 1976 to kind of help people pray the gay away. I did all of that. And each day I woke up still attracted to the same sex and it was agonizing and I hated myself and I thought God hated me and I even contemplated suicide. You know, it took me a long time to heal from all of that, to embrace my sexual orientation and to see it for what it really was, just a human trait, not a demonic attack. I was reminded of my experience when I was watching Pray Away, the Netflix doc from 2021 that looked at the lives of some of the LGBTQ plus people who was promoting that narrative that a person could change their sexual orientation if they just prayed hard enough. It was a hard watch for me because I kept getting angry watching so many people make money off of those people spreading those lies. That's why this episode of Life Out Loud is so personal for me. I had been a youth minister for two churches before I came out. My ex-wife's father was a minister. At one point, I lived with my pastor, and I thought the church was going to be my entire life. All I had to do was pray hard enough, and the gay would go away, and everything was going to be fine. I've now been out more than half my life, which is quite remarkable considering at one point I didn't want to live. I'm so thankful that God kept me safe, and he placed angels in my life to help me realize that not only was I gay, but that God loved me just the way that I was, just the way that I am. The two conversations you're going to hear this episode is all about faith. Pastor Rob Bell was my first spiritual leader after I came out. We talk about why his church, Mars Hill, was a safe haven for many LGBTQ plus people in Michigan trying to reconnect with God and not with religion. Pastor Bell is a New York Times bestselling author. He was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, and he even became buddies with Oprah. What do you know for sure? That you can say yes to this moment and experience a joy that can't be put into words. That is actually possible. I know that for sure. Afterwards, we chat with actor and activist Daniel Franzesi, whose podcast, Yes, Jesus, dives into his own journey of finding a place in God's kingdom as an openly gay man. But first, Pastor Rob Bell, and what happened to him when he dared to suggest that love wins. So I have to call you Pastor Bell because I, I can't call you by your first name yet. I'm, I'm not there, even though it's been years, I'm not there. <laughs> I've never told you this story, at least not directly. I don't know. I've probably have written about it. And that is, one, you are the last pastor I've ever had. And you are also the pastor that, that helped get me back to Christ. Wow. And I was an evangelical Christian. I had been a youth minister in two different churches, including one that was non-denominational, very much like the one you were pastor of, Mars Hill. And when I came out, all of that went away. 
not not by my choice right but um at that time and i came out um late 90s and it was hard you know it was it wasn't a good place but i think the hardest thing for me at that time pastor bell was being told that the person that i was 24 hours ago didn't matter it was only about who i was at that moment when i came out and your church your presence helped me reconnect with god with spirituality and helped me heal and the first thing i want to say is just thank you thank you oh man that is wonderful this is a lot of years later i get to hear this story that is very meaningful that is very very meaningful to hear my goodness Wow. So I want to start off by asking, because my my testimony, my story is not unique. I know a number of people in the LGBTQ community that found a home in your church. And my first question to you is, did you know that you were providing that at the time? You know, I had a constant stream of interactions that went a particular way. The person would say to me, I've just come out, I'm gay, I'm in my my first same gender relationship, something like that. And LZ, they would look at me partway into the question or the statement with a particular look in the eyes. You know what I mean? Like, yes, yes, I do almost reading me like, should I even bother finishing the sentence or just bail now before I, something gets said to me that I'm going to have in my head for the next 17 years? Do you know what I mean? Yes. One, another one of those voices on the shoulder. But what's interesting is they were standing in front of me. So they were asking me. So I something within them thought this person might be. And generally, honestly, the number of times I would just spread out my arms and offer them a hug. Mm. Because right away I was like, oh, this yes words but this kind of pain and the desire to be affirmed exists in the space beyond words like a wordless grace that's what the heart is asking for so i i i'm telling you over the years the number of people who i got to just look them in the eyes and say you're good we're fine welcome you belong here i'm so glad i got to meet you Yeah, you becoming more and more you. That's the only game worth playing. Mm -hmm. How can I help? Why do you think this community felt at home in your church? And we're in Grand Rapids, Michigan, West Michigan, where there are churches (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere. But your church was one where so many of us felt at home. Why do you think that was? Well, uh... One answer immediately comes to mind. I remember doing a series called God is Green about how central to any healthy spirituality is an understanding that as humans, we have to live in a sustainable relationship with the soil. Or I remember doing a whole series of sermons questioning the war in Iraq. Like, how can you have peace on earth when the largest global military superpower ever has started a war based on false information. So I, at, at one level, we were 
trying to address and go after and maybe be help for some actual problems in the world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There are things that need attention. So <laughs> um, I think people picked up on a sense that the house is on fire. Like there are actual urgent things that require people to throw themselves into that with great joy and, and try to actually do some good. And then early on, I kept meeting people who would say, you know what, I grew up in this setting that told me something was horribly wrong with me because I'm gay. And yet, I just kept noticing people who had been told something was wrong with them. But what it did is it created within them this, I either choose to be true to myself, but that means I have to walk away from this God over here that the people who are telling me something's wrong with me. It almost became like this choice between themselves, but then I watched them realize, oh, no, no, that's just a God of those people's making. And I kept meeting people who had done the very difficult work of taking apart the messages they were sent about the divine love and making peace with a new understanding of the divine. So I think people were drawn to this space where you could take apart the messages that you had been sent about how the world works. You could take them apart, you could examine them, you could toss them out, you could laugh at them. <laughs> I didn't come from West Michigan, I didn't grow up there, I didn't come from a particularly religious culture. So I'm telling you the number of times when I would say things and then find out later, you realize that you that's like a tenant of such and such denomination and you just were like, just did 41 minutes of a riff about how that's the most absurd idea ever. <laughs> I'd be like, I didn't know that I was pulling pins on grenades left and right. So people would say like, well, you know, it's really important in such and such denomination. And that wasn't a game that I had grown up playing. So I'd always be like, really? That's, what? <laughs> Are you familiar with the band DC Talk? I'm assuming so. Oh, wow. That's a... That's a deep cut. That's like a, an early rap, like like mid-90s maybe, late 80s. Yeah, 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 a Ooh, absolutely. Yeah. And I believe their biggest record was Jesus Freight. And they had a song off of there that has haunted me ever since I heard it. And the name of the, the title of the song is What If I Stumble. What if I stumble, what if I fall, you are my And the reason why it, it, it why it follows me is not necessarily because of the lyrics of the song, but because of how the song starts. It starts with a quote from Brennan Manning. The quote is, the single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply, simply finds, finds unbelievable. unbelievable. The first time I heard that quote as I'm trying to deal with my sexual orientation, mm. I'm trying to figure out, am I the one who is in danger of stumbling or is this someone else who's in danger of stumbling over how they're treating me? <laughs> right, right, right. And I kept vacillating back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. How did you know that you weren't the one leading people astray? Well, let's back up a second. When you asked why do I think people were drawn to that community at that time? I would say the first thing is that question that you were asking 
you have to have a community where there's no judgment in asking that question. Right. Like, you actually have to be able to ask the question. Like, think about the Psalms and these collection of prayers in the middle of the Bible. There are these lines like, why do you hide your face from me? Yes. I mean, these are questions about the deepest existential torment of the human experience. The, the, these are questions about the dark night of the soul, about the random nature of brutality and violence. If you can't ask these questions and not have somebody immediately jump in with some nice Bible verse or cliche, which ruins it, you have to actually be able to ask the question and then sit in the unknowing. And like for you to sit in that question, wait a second, am I the one stumbling here? Right. <laughs> you have to be able to follow that wherever it takes you. And for so many people, and perhaps listeners to your work now, spirituality, parentheses, religion, was always a prefabricated list of answers as opposed to a space where you ask the questions and then follow them where they take you. So, like you think about in the Gospels how many times Jesus is asked a question, he only answers questions a couple of times, one, two, three times. Otherwise, he responds to questions with questions because you're going to have to own it. You're going to have to work through it. You're going to have to wrestle through it for yourselves. So at a deep, deep level, I had a conviction that my job was less about answers and more about creating the kind of space where each person could follow the questions where they were taking them. Now, it's not that it's just a foggy haze of questions. You will find answers, but you begin from the place of humility. You begin from the place of exploration, which is always the place of childlike wonder and awe. Who am I? What does it mean to be LZ? Look how I am. Let's follow it. Let's see what happens. That's how it works. That's how it works, but that's not what we're taught. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's why people like you and me make the noise that we do. <laughs> <laughs> which which leads me to this. You know, I don't know how you look back on this moment in your life, but for me, it's one of the most significant moments of my existence. And that is the response to your book, Love Wins. Mm. And watching what our church was doing, watching what our community was doing in response to it, watching what Christianity was doing in response to it. Um, <laughs> when you look back on that time, you're laughing. So I'm going to assume you're healed and you've moved on. Yeah. Oh, man. I was laughing a little at the time, but it's been 10, almost 11 years. Now I'm really laughing at just almost like the surreal performance art absurdity of it. Do you know what I mean? Like people yeah. who are like, that's it, you've gone too far. You are talking about love. Like this talk about love cannot continue. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible to sit there in, in church and, 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 and hear people whisper and, and to see you. And I'm like, oh, really? Were they? See, I was sort of, uh, I was blind. I don't go on the internet and people don't really say things to your face. So people it, whispering, it was, that's it was, funny. <laughs> It was so, it was, it was silly, but it was also heartbreaking for me because as I said, like 
you were my pastor. And I'm like going, yeah, yeah. All the man right. said was love wins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's kind of you to say. Yeah. Th yeah. There are people who have said to me, man, just watching the pylon with you that they're like, that was tough to watch. You, you wouldn't, well, maybe you would believe the number of people who have said to me over the years, literally they'll come up in like public places and say, Hey, I just want you to know, I thought you were crazy. I was against you. I was one of the ones with pitchforks. And then I actually went through a crisis of sorts. I came upon your book and thank you. And then feel this need to apologize. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I ran funny? you out of West Michigan. I should have never have done that. <laughs> Did they run you out of West it's Michigan? Funny. No, no. Then why'd you leave us? Do you live in Los Angeles? I have lived in Los Angeles. I'm in Arizona now, but yes, I have lived in Los You're Angeles. You're in Arizona? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, because a chapter, it's that feeling of when a chapter comes to an end. Not because it was bad, because it was good. Most people in our culture only leave when things go upside down, when things turn south. But sometimes a, a season ends, a chapter ends, and it's time to do the next thing. Yeah, it got like a something for Kristen and I rose up within us like this has been such a wonderful experience. And now we got to keep exploring. We got to keep going. I wonder what's next. So you're you're telling me the response to that book, particularly in the area where we both were living at the time, did not play a factor in you deciding to leave leave the church you helped co-found and actually leave the time zone. Well, we <laughs> the time zone. Well, let me back up and say, I remember doing a series of teachings about women's equality, and a group of people at Mars Hill got together and organized themselves and wanted to have me removed as the pastor from the church that I just started. So there, there was always somebody who had a problem with my sermons, and then there was always somebody standing behind them in line saying, oh my God, I've waited my whole life to hear that. Thank you. It's like the cloud moved. It was like a very powerful, well done, you started a church. What a ride. Now, here's what's next. Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you though, Kristen and I were very, very, had a deep knowing that there were lots and lots and lots of people who were more spiritually hungry than ever and were not going to show up at a church in West Michigan. So there, there was a sense, because I had been touring and we had been making some short films and I had been traveling quite a bit, oh, there's like a whole world of people who they're not going to do that, but they're actually hungrier than ever. So let's make some things and let's, let's see where that takes us. And that's what it's been like for the past decade. It's been wonderful. How does a queer person, in your estimation, navigate these waters when they try to sink your ship for saying something like love wins or women should be treated equally? My, my wife, Kristen, always says you can't take people where they don't want to go. So I would first say find your brothers and sisters 
who are singing the same song. Because I'll, I'll meet people who will, they'll be exhausted and weary, sort of beaten down, and they'll be very cynical and discouraged about humanity, let alone the things that people have said to them, particularly in regards to queerness. Or, and, and, and I'll say, where did you hear these things? And they'll say, well, it's in my Facebook comments. And I'll be like, okay, okay, here's the thing. We've got to turn off your Facebook comments. That's not where you're going to find the brothers and sisters you walk through. Think about human community in different ways than just people throwing stones on the internet. Yeah. It only takes a few people you're walking with, two or three, and you don't feel alone. I know there's still a massive struggle out there, but I just see so many people creating all kinds of different spaces, like therapists and artists and musicians and spiritual leaders and recovering pastors people opening up their backyards and their garages and their living rooms and there's a pub in Portland there's a woman who has a backyard thing she's doing in Texas there's a some people who have a basement thing in Tulsa where it's everything is created so that people will feel right at home and won't hear those kinds of words as arrows and knives that stick with you for years so so I'm just seeing this exploration and innovation all over the place you know, I um, had a recent conversation with the actor Zachary Levi, who plays Kurt Warner in the new movie American Underdog. Oh, yeah. Marvelous Miss Maisel, that guy. Exactly, exactly. He's so good. He's so talented. But one of the things we talked about as we were having this discussion about Christianity in Hollywood was how he was doing something similar, which was wasn't necessarily in a traditional church home but was finding church with the people as opposed to with the building. Yes. Do you believe that for the LGBTQ community, that's the best option? Or is there still some benefit for going the traditional route, even if the traditional route may expose them to some things that aren't pleasant? The interesting thing about your question is to cut it off from an actual person and an actual story gets a little tricky to answer because I have met people who are like, I'm queer, I am in South Dakota, and I am part of a community in which at least half the people would think that I am a, a wretched sinner who is going to burn forever. And actually, I think my job is to show them what they fear most, to show them that in flesh and blood, and be loving and help actually maybe expand their consciousness. So I have met people who are like, I know I'm going to hear all kinds of things. I know judgments are going to be made. I know I'm going, and yet I, I think my job is to actually show them that the thing they think is so horrible is just people who aren't like them and it's okay. But ultimately what I always, always think is interesting is what you, when you ask people, what do you want? People always, always say, I'd like some people to walk with. I'd like some people to learn with and grow with. And nobody, LZ, no one ever names anything that you can't do in your living room. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever names anything that you need a budget, you need a building, you need uh, paid authority figures. You are living in an era of massive cultural upheaval in which the traditional institutions for millions and millions of people have utterly collapsed and 
if you're familiar with the Christ pattern, if you want a resurrection, you got to have a death. Like a whole, a whole litany of things are dying. Um, ways of thinking, ways of understanding what it means to be human, sexuality, but war, earth, power, finance, <laughs> gap between rich and poor, race, how we think about police, like all, you know this, all of this. And so to me, as it, so much of it is sort of collapsing in its, the form it's been in, what's interesting is to sniff around in the edges because that's where all the innovating and seeds are being planted. Final question for you. When you think about all of the arguments that you've heard or you are aware of in terms of why people who are in positions of power within the church condemn or say that the LGBTQ community are sinners um, and need to repent, what piece of advice, if any, could you share for someone who is struggling the way that I was struggling before I stumbled across your church? I would invite the person to consider their own deep knowing. Take the Exodus story. Moses and the people are standing at the foot of the mountain, and the ancient text says the people stood at a distance from the mountain, and they said, Moses, you go up on the mountain. We're not going up on the mountain. We're terrified. If we go up on the mountain, we'll die. They can't go up on the mountain. They're terrified. They want Moses to do it for them. And I would say that at the heart of the human experience, the brokenness of the human experience has been humanity standing at a distance from the mountain. Hmm. Every cult begins with the belief that somebody has some sort of magic and they're going to give us little bits and pieces of the magic if we're fortunate. And so for so many people, the way that their spirituality was explained to them from a very young age, so it makes sense it takes a while to work through, it's pre-rational the way the wound first comes in, is somebody else knows better about who you are, which essentially what it does for the person at a deep psychosocial spiritual level is the person ends up standing at a distance from their own life. Hmm. So I can only imagine what happened to you is you were told all these things by authority figures, but then your own LZ deep knowing was like, mm, uh, I don't think that's actually how it is. So what happens, you can see in that tender moment right there, in that tender, vulnerable, almost trembling moment, do I trust my own deep knowing or do I go with what they're telling me about me? But if, they, if you go with what they're telling you about you, you have to find some way to then not listen to that still small voice deep within you. But I would say to the person, trust that deep knowing. That which is deepest within you is good. And this giant structure that's been in place for, God has been working on people for 1600 years that told people that you are first and foremost a sinner. I'd say, no, first and foremost, you bear the divine spark. You're a daughter, you're a son, you're a child of the divine. That which is deepest within you is good. Listen to that, trust it, follow it. What's happened with you? 
Yeah. So that's what I'd say. There you go. There's a sermon. There it was. <laughs> that's why I love you still all these years later. <laughs> oh, that's great. Pastor Rob Bell. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your grace, your love. You know, I'm not quite sure where I would be if not for those years of sitting there and just being nurtured by your wisdom. And I'm just so grateful that you continue to find new ways, creative ways to continue to share your understanding of the divine and of spirituality. Mm. Thank you. That's, I'm so glad we met. This is great. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, the funny thing about Daniel Franzese is that I know him more from the HBO show Looking than from the movie Mean Girls, although Mean Girls is the cult classic and Looking was a show that nobody knew what to do with, or at least they had a hard time figuring out what to do with it. I loved it though, especially Daniel's character of Eddie because it challenged me, you know? Like I've been through it too many times. Like a really well-intentioned guy says that he's totally cool and, and well-informed and big surprise, he's not. Like I just can't anymore. Okay, that's not what's going on. No, do, do you have any idea what it's like to be a big pause queer in this town? He was just so free and sex positive and it just exposed a lot of the shame that I was still carrying and didn't even know it was in me. Just like his podcast, Yes, Jesus, it challenges me to let go of some of the lies about God and faith I had accepted as truth. Things that I didn't know I was still carrying. With so much talk about freedom of religion, Daniel reminds us that there is joy and freedom from religion as well, and that we don't have to choose between our faith and our identity. I'm just gonna jump right into it, Daniel. You have this amazing podcast called Yas Jesus. Yas Jesus. Can you please explain how did Yas Jesus come <laughs> to be? Well, when I was a closeted actor, I said to myself that my platform when I were to come out was going to be to unite gays and God. That was always something that I sort of like a deal that I made with God. Like, just let me get, let me get through this. Let me make enough money to take care of my family. Let me make enough. Uh, Cause I saw a lot of people losing their careers when they came out. Chad Allen, you know, I mean, some people were, their careers really suffered when they were being outed and pulled out of the closet on blogs and in, in magazines. And so it was kind of like very scary. Anyway, I had this like little promise, but then when I did come out, it was a much more organic way. It felt more political and uh, more about like the state of Hollywood and not as that much about my relationship with God. Although I did, con I did write articles and things about that to try to continue to speak on God. I've never denied God, but I felt like I still owed something in, in my own personal heart of like my own like life mission to sort of help remind gay people that God was there for them. And so I met Azariah Southworth, who's my co-host on the podcast, and we became fast friends. And we talked about both of our history of being young and having church trauma and both going to conversion therapy on different ends of the spectrum, his more physical, mind psychological, and like 
just what that did to us and how we still kept God close to us and how unique that was for a queer person who is sex positive and, you know, um, liberal and, and all these things that him and I were. And we we're like, how could we be ourselves? Because we would like smoke a joint and talk about God. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, it's so interesting to me because <laughs> well, he did make the plant. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, and so I was just like, where is our church? Like, where's the place that we could just have this conversation safely? It's not even like, you know, as you know, I always say, we're not preachers. We're not teachers. We're just sinners like everybody else trying to figure it out. And like, you guys can listen while we try. Like, that's all it really is, is where could we have this space where LGBTQ plus people and allies can just openly say, okay, we agree, you know, so now we're, we agree that LGBTQ people were put here by God. We agree that that is something that was part of the divine plan. Now from there, where are our perspectives? How do we look at the Bible? How do we find out his, the things that were weaponized against us and what they might've truly meant? And I don't think anyone has the definitive answer. I think all of us are wondering, we, we don't call it Bible study. We call it Bible wondering. And so that's really how the, the podcast came about. And then we were like, okay, let's plan this. Let's do this. It's just been an amazing thing how we've been able to show so many people all around the world that God loves you no matter what. And we've gotten calls from and letters from Tokyo and Venezuela and Chile and Peru and Paris. I just can't believe every time when we're reading something or someone leaves us a voice message on our website that it, where it's coming from. And I mean, we just left it with the intention of, hey, we have these really big thoughts and that we should record them someplace so someone might want to hear them one day. We never thought that it would take off the way it did. It's an absolutely incredible and necessary podcast. But I, I want to go back to something that you said a little bit earlier, which is still using the Bible as your sort of point of, of reference in terms of navigating this this conversation of religion and queer identity. How did you for yourself and for this podcast, rationalize the scriptures that, you know, oftentimes conservatives and anti-LGBTQ voices will point to that seems to not be affirming while also still using the Bible as sort of like your North Star to have these conversations. So you did a great, you said a great thing there. You said that, that uh, they will use the Bible to point to. You know, the first thing that I started to discover when I did a little bit of research, because we had like I think like four, four to six months before we started the podcast that we knew we were going to do it and we were pulling it all together, sort of like in pre-production, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I started reading my old Bible stories again and started checking in on the Bible. And I realized very quickly, because God will show you, you know, <laughs> it'll show you straight up, but like that the Bible is a reflective text. Like you have to look at it yourself. You can't trust somebody else to look in the mirror for you and let you know that you're all right if you're going to walk out of the house, you know? And the Bible is that mirror of the soul. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, especially when they're not on that high of a vibration when it comes to that kind of thing. And so when we, the first thing that really opened up to me was the fact that the copy, the physical book, the copy of the Bible that I hold in my hand today is the same Bible that I held in conversion therapy. Wow. And that's powerful to me that it, 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 that it stood by me then and it's by me now. And then the story of David and Jonathan, I think, was my intro to realizing, because to me, there's a lot of queer perspectives that we discuss on Yash Jesus. We talk about um, how lesbians could be inspired by the story of Ruth and Naomi. We talk about how uh, trans folks and intersex folks can maybe be inspired by the story of Paul talking to the eunuch. There's so many different ways. Um, genderqueer folks can be inspired by the story of Joseph, which I all, and, and, and the dream coat, the beautiful technicolor coat. However, um, 
I think David and Jonathan is so clearly a gay love story. Too. <laughs> it, it, it got the vibes. I will be with. There are some vibes over there. I will admit that. <laughs> like, no, there's more than vibes. Like when you read First Samuel, and you're going through, and and just the way that it's worded, and the way that Saul talks to them, like you'll never be king hanging around with him. And it's kind of like, well, what does he mean by that? Or you're a sinner just like your mother. Well, we don't hear the stories of the women. Was his mother a lesbian? What, what are they trying to tell us in, in this? And I think that the Bible leaves you open to interpretation and wonder because it's reflective. You fill it in with everything else that it needs to be for you. Like you fill it in all of that, that gap of the story and the tale for yourself. And I think that when they talk about how when Jonathan first saw David, their souls were knit. When his eyes met David's, their souls were knit. And he talks about how the, the love of him was greater than a woman. And then it really broke my head open when I realized that there are no weddings in the Bible. I mean, there is the wedding where Jesus turns the water into wine. Where he's at that wedding, but we don't see the ceremony happen. That the only covenants of love that are in the Bible, that are read at every single wedding, heterosexual and gay, whenever they read text from the Bible, are the, the covenants of love between David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi, two men and two women. Wow. And to me, that blew my mind. How did they handle you in conversion therapy when you're armed with something like that? <laughs> I didn't have that kind of armor when I was in conversion therapy. That's precisely the reason that we do Yas Jesus, to give people who don't have the armor the armor, because we didn't have it. Like, um, but I have it now. I made it on the journey. I just knew from my instinct, I knew from my core that God wanted me this way. I, right, right before I went into conversion therapy, I challenged God, which is like such a huge thing to say. I mean, if you want to get deep this fast, like my name's Daniel. It means God is my judge. My parents named me that because they converted to Pentecostal Christianity from Roman Catholicism and my immigrant grandparents were not having it. And it was this huge fight and riff in my family that they used me as, a, as a, a punctuation point for. So my life has always had the meaning of carrying on God's message with no judgment and no reservation to anyone but God. So when I was discovering my sexuality, what a better person to be in this position um, and, and tell this testimony than somebody who was born gay. Like, I was born gay, but I was told God is my judge. That's what I was told over and over again right next to the ABCs. So... I'm armored with that. So that's what carried me through conversion therapy is knowing that the only person that could judge me is God, is my father God. So that, that's, I've always had that. Even my lowest point, even my darkest place, even in my most sinful moment, whatever that is, like God was right there. And so I, I just feel bad like when queer people are told that they have to make a choice. That is the greatest lie the devil ever told to gay people. Gays for centuries have dedicated their love for Christ. Why do you think there's so much pomp and circumstance? Why do you think there's so much velvet and incense and robes? And <laughs> we did it. So it's like we're, we've been a part of the church forever. So for the modern Christian, quote unquote Christian, to say to a queer person that you don't have a place in the house of our Lord is the greatest discrepancy. I, I say to gay people all the time, I say, what's your favorite thing? What is the thing if your house was going to burn down that you would take with you? What would you want? Oh, I love my Louis Vuitton uh, cl clutch all or whatever, carry all. Oh, I love my little puppy, uh, Rocky or whatever. Okay. Well, if I came into your house and I said, you're gay, give me Rocky. Or you're gay, let me, give me that bag. You'd be like, screw you. I'm not, you can't take my most prized possession, but you let them take your God? Hmm. Wow. <laughs> it's so powerful to me.
it's so powerful that I've, the people have turned their nose up at me my whole life because I'll raise a hand in, in church and just worship and like and feel the presence of God and try to be on another vibration with our creator. And then I'll see people like pass out at a Beyonce concert or a Gaga concert like it's nothing. <laughs> Even they don't want that attention. Trust me. <laughs> trust me. It's weird. So you have this incredible testimony, right? Conversion therapy. Um, your brilliant career iconic you know movie and mean girls when you decided to do the podcast how much of the podcast is about you the everyday person navigating faith and how much it is you the celebrity being a leader to people who are listening to what you have to say because you're in this position you have this platform i'm definitely not a celebrity on yes jesus like at all like I'm on there as Danny and I'm hanging out literally with my best friend. And now that with, you know, the pandemic and with holidays and everything else, I don't even get to talk to Azzy that often. We usually see each other every day, but I, because he's literally like my bestie, but like, you know, um, he's busy with his boyfriend. He's in another state that I'm, I'm commiserating with my friend and my brother every week on that show real, you know, and we're, we're doing it with people that we love. And so, I'm not a celebrity on that show. I'm there just to like learn. I find out things all the time on there. I can't even believe like, you know, one of the big, another big revelation I love to share when discussing the podcast with people is Joseph and the coat, right? Everyone talks about this coat of many colors. And this is another time where you were saying that the preachers like point and tell us a story. That story has only been told to me. I never researched that story. I've only had it told to me all the time. Oh, it was told to me here. As a musical theater major, I knew Andrew Lloyd Webber's version better than I knew the Bible's version. And the, it wasn't a coat. <laughs> like, like 86 years after Christ's death is the earliest translation they found where it's called the Ketanet Pasim. And it was called the Ketanet Pasim for centuries. Like, and a Ketanet Pasim is a word that is only mentioned one other time in the Bible, and that is at the wedding of Tamar. And it means a virginal princess dress. Joseph was in a rainbow dress. And to not even tell that perspective is literally doing a disservice to the Bible. So if someone's listening to this conversation right now, and you know, obviously right. what you're saying would be eye-opening to them, and they would question it and second-guess it. So where, where are your sources? How are you coming about to this determination? You know, we did a whole episode on this where we cite many, many, many sources. So it's really, if you're really, really interested, check out the... Um, the Joseph and the Technicolor Dream Coat, Gender Queer Coat, as we called it, episode, because that really, we, I mean, we really cite a lot of the sources, but there are tons of scholars that have talked about this. We come up with a lot of ways that we can cite this, but essentially, and it is fact, I'm not, this isn't something that I'm saying hypothetically, but it is fact that in 86 AD, the translation was a Ketanet Pasim, which meant a dress that was given to a princess on her wedding day by her father. So apparently Jacob had gone out and seen this somewhere being sold and thought that Joseph would like it. And, you know, there are other sources of text besides the Bible that were from the time there were almanacs. You know, there's, uh, you know, uh, the book of Enoch. There's Dead Sea Scroll type things that back up other things. But in the book of Enoch, for, for one of them, they describe Joseph as hairless and sensitive. So he could have been a, a trans or Joseph could have been genderqueer or, or at least at least the reason that the church could have decided to accept those people over centuries and show them God's love and show an example to them of why that they deserve to be around and why God made them special people. 
and instead it was chose to be a weapon and then that part was changed from a dress to a coat and there's been a lot of hatred of homosexuality from uh, the church um, and it's politicized so much now that they can't really turn their back on the idea of it you know there's a documentary coming out called 1946 that shows that the first time the word homosexual was added to the bible was in 1946 and now in some texts it's in nine places in the bible it doesn't even belong when you think about where we were as a country in this conversation of spirituality, religion, and the LGBTQ community, where you were when, say, you were filming Mean Girls, and where you are today, do you see improvement? Sadly, I see it in some areas, but I really feel like the past administration especially did something to our culture that divided it in a way that allowed people who have strong negative feelings to not feel ashamed about that so they don't have to have an open mind so it's a it's a little bit harder to change somebody's mind about how they feel about a minority or an lgbtq person if it was a stand for god or a political action those are very hardcore things and that's what it's been for a while and i think that at the core, the best thing that an LGBTQ person could be is an example of love. That's what, that's what I preach. Like, just be the best love thing that you could be. Like, if you guys are in love and you're sitting over there, even if they're going, ew, two men are together, they're going to say, oh, they're so in love. I want that. You know? And if you're just an example of love. And I think Christians need to just realize that that's what it's about, that it's about love. And I think... You know, we're, we're really starting to discover so much about gender identity and sexuality and how those don't even, they, that they might, the lenses might go over each other to create a certain spectrum, but they're actually separate lenses. For instance, I'm gay. I am homosexual, but I did love women in my life. So I think that there was a period of my life that I was bi-romantic. Maybe I was homosexual, but bi-romantic. And I loved those women as much as I could without being able to be sexual with them. But my emotion, my emotional love was true. And I feel that there's so many people who have to compartmentalize things like that and are told by society that that can't be a possibility. Or, and I think as we're discovering more and more and more how fluid everything is, I think it's going to open up more people's eyes to tolerance. But that's not something that you could expedite. That has to come from experience and exposure. And, you know, I had political aspirations because I thought maybe securing rights for those people was a step in the right direction, but just because people have a right doesn't mean people respect them. We've seen how that's gone with the African-American community. Amen to that. As an ally in that fight, I could only use it as a parallel in my own and say that I could move mountains faster just by having a little old podcast in my living room. I could probably do more here than I could on Capitol Hill. And let me tell you something. I lobby Capitol Hill every April with the, as an ambassador for Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation for people with HIV AIDS, for LGBTQ homelessness, and for conversion therapy. I talk to all of our representatives. I don't even live in Florida, and I still make sure that I talk to the, the Floridian uh, representatives because that's where my little nibblings, my, niece, my nieces and my nephew are growing up, and that's where I plan to have children one day, and that's where I went to school. I'm still doing my part, but really what I'm doing the most is what anyone could do. And that is why I urge any listener of yours or mine to do. Grab a microphone, get up on this laptop and just record it and put it out there on the airwaves because people just need to hear the message. When the Pulse shooting happened, it rocked my world. A lot of these shootings have been close to home. Parkland's right down the block. Like, it's very close to me, but something about Pulse. It, 
it changed me. It literally changed me. And I just was like in tears and inconsolable for weeks. And I was shaking all the time and I became so angry about guns and I, I just anger and, and, and asking God why. And I looked online for a prayer for the LGBTQ community and I couldn't find a one. I needed one and you didn't even have one for me. On all of the Christian websites of all of the Christian churches anywhere, there should be at least a prayer for the LGBTQ people if you're so worried about them. They're just erased and they're erased from their families. Like I've seen it happen. Some girl in my college, her mom had a funeral when she came out of the closet for her. Like people are sick. And, and, and these children are on loan from God. They don't belong to these parents. God loaned them to them to take care of them and nurture them until they could be on their own. And they need to hear from us. They're our siblings. That is beautifully said, Daniel. It truly is. I really appreciate your candor in terms of this intersection. A lot of people, you know, shy away from it, um, feeling that their choice needs to be made. Uh, I am a man of faith. I'm also openly gay. And, you know, like you, you know, it's been a journey. And it's a journey that I'm still very much part of um, and still very much on. You know, the hit TV show We're Here featured a, a minister from Evansville, Indiana, who did drag to support his brother who did drag and has since then been dismissed by the church. Um, yes. So this is an ongoing conversation, and I'm really mm -hmm. glad that you're in the middle of it uh, with your podcast, Yes, Jesus. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, thank you very much for spending time with us here on Life Out Loud. Well, thank you for having me and for spreading the good news. Amen. On the next episode of Life Out Loud, do you want a relationship or a situationship? And I've had this conversation with gay people, I've had this conversation with straight people, where they will look at me and say, I couldn't do what you and Terry do, an open relationship, because I value commitment too highly. And I look at them and I'm like, 28 years we've been together. How many decades have to go by before people think we're committed? The next thing out of their mouths, and this has happened again and again and again, is they'll say, I couldn't do what you guys do. I value commitment too highly. All three of my marriages were monogamous. <laughs> you stop and, it right now. People right, don't say that to you. Oh my God, yes, they did. We're talking with best-selling author and advice columnist Dan Savage, along with actor, comedian, and RuPaul's Drag Race winner, Bob the Drag Queen. I have two boyfriends, and they're really wonderful. I sometimes I forget that everyone's not hip to polyamory. It's really not as crazy as you all think it is. I just have two completely separate relationships at the same time. Open your minds and your hearts next week on Life Out Loud. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And remember to hit subscribe if you haven't already. And please, please, please tell your friends, your family, your loved ones, your side pieces, your main pieces, anyone who you think could benefit from listening to these incredible stories from these remarkable people. And also, just take a moment to leave us a rating and review. That goes a long way to helping us get the word out. And more importantly, keep going. Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by my friend Trevor Hastings. Senior producer is Brenda Salinas Baker. Our amazing production team includes David Toledo, Vika Arison, and Carrie Ann Thomas. The executive producer of Life Out Loud is Liz Alessi. A big shout out to Lakia Brown, Joe Moore, Robert Zapata, Tony Morrison, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, and Stacia Tashisku. I'm LZ Granderson. This is good, good. good.